Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This is The Week in Politics with Peter Jukes, co-founder of the Byline Times and the paper's editor, Hardeep Matharu. We'll be reflecting on Boris Johnson's final PMQs, for now anyway, and the Ford report into Labour factionalism, which has been seized on by Jeremy Corbyn's supporters as evidence that there were people inside the party machine who were plotting against him. First, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscribers to the Byline Times, our wonderful monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep. No one tells us what to say. We can report without fear or favour and hold the rich and powerful to account because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers to the Byline Times. There's no oligarch or non-dom telling us what to say. So please subscribe if you can. You'll get details at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. Boris Johnson was warmly applauded by Conservative MPs after his final Prime Minister's questions in the Commons this week, although his predecessor, Theresa May, couldn't seem to find her hands in time to join the clapping. Strange that. Johnson's sign-off was Arnold Schwarzenegger's Hasta la vista, baby, from Terminator 2. Was he really channelling another Arnie catchphrase, though, from the first Terminator film? I'll be back. We shall see. In the meantime, what is his legacy? Discuss. First up then, Hardeep, editor of the Byline Times. What do you reckon? Oh, I, I reckon your impressions of Arnie are fantastic, Adrian, and I definitely want to hear more of those uh, this afternoon. It, it was really interesting. I feel like we've gone through the looking glass this week a bit um, or in various ways, but I guess Boris Johnson's last PMQs uh, was very representative of that because it was only about two weeks ago that we had over 60 resignations from Boris Johnson's government. We had these extraordinary uh, two days where everybody was saying how he had ruled over chaos. He had brought uh, the entire office of prime minister into disrepute. He had bred distrust in democracy and politicians. He lacked integrity. He was bringing everything down. And that was only two weeks ago. <laughs> and what we saw this week on Wednesday was a standing ovation for Boris Johnson by the Conservative Party, uh, with only, as you say, Theresa May uh, remain remain seating, and then she eventually stood, but she didn't clap. And I think that was it's just been extraordinary how not only in the PMQs and the the sort of tone and the uh, atmosphere in Parliament uh, on the Conservative benches, but also in the Conservative Party leadership campaign, it, we seem to have erased what happened two weeks ago, which was uh, this man who had been very damaging to democracy and the Conservative Party and the country uh, suddenly that's not really talked about. You know, the, none of the candidates, apart from saying they don't want him in their cabinets in the future, they don't really, I, I'm not sure how they're distanced from Boris Johnson. So it's it's sort of been through the keyhole and I, uh, through, yeah, through, uh, through looking glass. And I think also we have Rishi Sunak who voted for Brexit and is seen as sort of 
a Remainer by Tory membership. We have Liz Truss, who voted to remain, who's liked by Brexiteers. Uh, you know, Sunak seen uh, for some reason uh, as left wing, even though he uh, inherited William Hague's seat constituency in the north. And Liz Truss, who was a former Lib Dem, is suddenly seen as, as very right wing. In many ways, we've sort of everything is upside down. And that comes back to uh, Johnson's sign off in the Commons. You know, is it Hassan Vista or is it I'll be back? Uh, and I think there is more doubt now. Yeah, there are more questions to be asked about whether this is the last of Johnson. Is, is he going to uh, you know, go around the world making speeches, writing books? Or is he going to linger? And I think even if he physically doesn't, his legacy is going to. Peter, he's obviously given his valedictory speech in which he notoriously failed to apologise for any of his failings. So presumably he thinks there were none during his prime ministership. What do you think is the legacy of Boris Johnson? Uh, the destruction continues. This is the worrying side of it all. I mean, obviously, uh, some of us are relieved that we don't have a lawless incontinent libertine running the country. But just as our early analogies three years ago when he took office compared him not just in looks and manner to Donald Trump, but the forces behind him, very similar and same personnel as Donald Trump, it is looking like he will have the same destructive effect on the Conservative Party that Trump has uh, inflicted on the Republican Party in the US. I say this, I mean, he... He, one of his speeches, not his farewell speech, but in the House of Commons on the debate, which they called, you know, this weird, twisted form of parliamentary procedure now, they called, a, Boris Johnson's government called, or party called a debate, no confidence in themselves. What he turned to was this phrase, beloved of Trump, Trumpists and make America great again, uh, supporters, which is the deep state would try to overturn Brexit. So he's clearly he's shameless in his personal and political life while having, you know, locked out breaking parties and getting jobs to the boys and all the things he's done. But it seems he's now addicted to this destructiveness and disruption. My sense is that you can see him playing all kinds of games with the leadership debate, that he's now got a taste. He's like an evil joker. I think Bonnie Greer at our book launch event on on Wednesday for Wokelaw, a book Hardy presented of Byline Times articles. Either her or maybe Musok Wonga, who's also there, compared him to an evil clown, right? It's not fun anymore, and I think he's got a taste for it. More importantly, the ideology he has said. I mean, the amazing thing is, you see, you see I mean, who was it? Nigel Farage said, well, he, he went to power as a conservative, but ruled as a liberal. Except for the minor elements and the sort of bungs, I would say, sometimes on these Port Barrel Town projects of levelling up. There's no indication that Johnson was anything but quite a hard right-winger within the Conservative Party. Certainly his uh, trust seems to be following that mould. The emphasis on privatising Channel 4, Pretty Patel was sat next to her in the Commons. This sense that it will be Boris Johnson's government but without the lawlessness, but also, I must say, in terms of electoral po possibilities, without the charisma, because like him or loathe him in the country, quite liked him, then got to loathe him. Boris Johnson does have a presence. He has a kind of reach as the, the Heineken of politicians gets to places other conservative politicians can't reach. With his policies, basically his policies, the same policies, fronted up most likely by Liz Truss, 
potentially by Rishi Sunak. I can see uh, two terrible years ahead, really. Uh, but also, I can see that that's not going to work the Conservatives. It's, you know, Johnson did appeal to those red wallers. He did have a sort of ch fake Chichilian aspect, which, you know, the Ukrainians, for example, who love him. So I see, yeah, as I said, I think it's going to be tough. I don't think the Conservative Party is going to change, but they're maybe not going to be so popular. Mm. And Hardeep, we have these rounds now, and they've been continuing over the last few days of elimination in the Conservative Party leadership battle. So we're now left with Truss with Trus versus Sunak, both of them outdoing each other, really, to try and rectify economic damage that presumably they think was caused by somebody else. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Because Rishi Sunak has been the chancellor uh, for the past few years. I mean, the state we're in, not only in terms of the cost of living crisis, how that's linked to what happened during the coronavirus uh, and also Brexit, which none of the candidates can mention, you know, because it's been done and apparently the public wants to move on. And of course, we can't actually uh, face the reality of the economic damage that that has done and is doing to many services uh, and, you know, just parts of society uh, in, in the country. Yeah, none of them, none of them have really mentioned uh, how we got into this mess. I mean, they've made general statements about, you know, the approach hasn't been right for a while or, uh, you know, we need to tackle the cost of living. But again, in terms of concrete proposals, I mean, uh, Rishi Sunak has tried to distinguish himself somewhat from the other candidates and in, in not promising tax cuts immediately and saying we need to control inflation. And that is different from Liz Truss, who I think is taking the more Johnsonian populist route. But on both fronts, it's not clear how this would, how what any either of them would do would be uh, a complete break from what we've seen, not just under Boris Johnson, but you know, it's 12 years now of conservative governments. Uh, all of that has led to where we are, you know, re recessions uh, leading to austerity, uh, cuts to welfare. That That has all been in train. I don't see either of them uh, shying away from that. And even Johnson in his last PMQs, he was still, when asked about the cost of living crisis, his, his main response to the Labour Party was, well, we want to get people into work, you are happy for them to stay on benefits, which I think is is slightly disingenuous. I think it's, again, bringing in those simplistic tropes about, you know, scroungers and strivers, and, and that's all very much at the heart of the party as well. But yeah, you're right. I mean, both Sunak and Truss have been part of the government that has led us to this point in terms of economics. And as Peter says, you know, the next couple of years, there will likely to be a general election. And I think in terms of economics, this is one area that is interesting because it affects people's lives. It, you know, people can't pay their <clears throat> people can't pay their bills. People are really struggling. It's the one area that is it's hard to use slow. <clears throat> excuse me. It's hard to use slogans and rhetoric to cover up uh, the suffering that people are feeling in a very real way. And I think economics might be one area which you know, get gets the Tories at, at the ballot box next time. And it'll be interesting if Truss is elected as opposed to Sunak. Sunak's got more experience in the Treasury, but he's also the guy who's led us to this point we're in at the moment, which which is not good at all. 
Peter, you've been tweeting this week an article that you wrote for Byline Times in 2019 and tracing back the origins of the Johnson project. And you've touched on that already in this conversation. I just think it'd be worth expanding that a little bit about the shared roots of Trumpism and Johnsonism. Yeah, I mean, one way way to start would be to look at uh, what was called the Conservative Madrasa of the Young Britons Foundation, a youth organization whose president was initially Daniel Hannan, who was funded uh, through a offshoot called the Young Americans Foundation, which was funded by Robert Mercer. Robert Mercer, big backer of Trump, uh, founder of Cambridge Analytica, owner of Breitbart, the right-wing news site. Now, back in... This had been going quite a long time, but back in 2013, um, there is a meeting in Cambridge University at uh, D- Churchill College. Uh, when their fest- it's their annual conference, lots of Americans fly over, and the big speakers of that event are none other than Steve Bannon, who's on a panel with a right wing, becomes one of his editors in London, a Breitbart, Raheem Kassan. And Harry Cole, at that moment, working for Guido Fawkes, Paul Staines' right-wing blog. Now, that is exactly the moment he sets up Cambridge Analytica. And you can see in the discussions around then that both U.S. right-wing Republicans, and if you like, the right of the party, were looking for a new right-wing candidate. Um, Trump had already been mooted, oddly enough, by some Russian contacts in 2012. Uh, but that point in 2012, too, very interestingly, uh, given that David Cameron was in coalition government and Brexit referendum hadn't happened, uh, in 2012, Paul Staines registered a blog, Boris 2020. So you can see that there were ambitions uh, which tied up with Cambridge Analytica, right-wing U.S. money, Robert Mercer funded it, and his daughter, Rebecca, a lot of right-wing causes. A number of the personnel who became journalists or activists or politicians uh, after round Brexit were at, at that, were members of the Young Brits Foundation. So there was definitely, it's not a conspiracy. I mean, it's a confluence of interests that they were looking. They hadn't, you know, Johnson was obviously a preferred candidate, he was at that point a successful mayor of London. Trump was had not declared, but it was in a way a campaign, a campaign that's a libertarian campaign, though also pro-gun rights and death penalty. Anti didn't use the word anti-woke, but a, a right-wing campaign in search of a candidate. And they, you know, if you look at it, and the cover of our book Woke Law, which Hardy edited, which is out now, has a the, the Owen woke is a orange face with white hair, and then the O in law is a paler face with uh, blonde hair, and it's Trump and Johnson. And we were mocked, I'm not mocked, but oh, Johnson's nothing like Trump. Well, there are similarities. If you wanted to construct an ideal image to appeal to a certain American voter, a brash, you know, sex, a macho uh, real estate developer would be a great one from New York, and the UK, Etonian. An old Etonian who quotes Latin quotes, quotes Latin tags would be good for the UK. But the money and the forces are there. And as we've said for the last year, they we've got to look beyond Johnson. The forces that brought him into being have not gone away.
It's funny, Peter, because I remember when I, I remember that you were one of the first people who started making the comparison, say, not, not saying that they're exactly the same, but, you know, drawing attention to the fact that there are certain similarities, both in their style and their populist approach. And at the time, yes, you're right. People were sort of were very like, no, they're, they're completely different. Why, why would you be making that comparison? It's overdone. But I think it's been really interesting. I think even Andrew Neil, uh, in the the last two weeks, when the, you know the week of the resignation of Johnson, when there was some confusion or worry that he might go to the Queen and ask Parliament to be dissolved and call a general election without actually uh, resigning as leader of the Conservative Party, even Andrew Neil, in the wake of that tweeted you know the actually the comparisons aren't aren't that overdone and in a way our insurrection has potentially been Johnson and his refusal to give up office although it seems as if he is actually on his way out now but yeah those comparisons were made uh, early on by those people who understood the forces behind uh, both Johnson and Trump. And I think you're right in, in that those are the things which are now going to remain. They're not just going to go away. And I think we also just can't turn the clock back to a time before Johnson and Trump, you know, both us here uh, in the UK and in America, those forces are at play. They're very strong, and by that, by their very nature, the, you know, the water we swim in changes. It doesn't remain the same. You can't just go back and uh, to another time when those forces weren't present. And I think that's what's concerning about the Conservative leadership campaign. In a way, there was an opportunity for the more traditional One Nation Conservative tradition to recapture the party. But it might be that there has to be another general election for the modern Tories to find out whether Johns Johnsonism lives on beyond Johnson or whether they need to go back to something that appeals more traditionally. But again, how they bring those different constituencies together that Johnson managed to do, the Red Wall and the Tory shires, is, is the dilemma that they're faced with, I think. Yeah, well, one of the legacies is evident even in the Conservative Party election to replace Johnson, and it's hinted at in the title of your book, Hardy, Woke Law, the sense that culture wars can be wheeled out in order to distract or to, in some way, undermine people. So that in Penny Mordaunt's case, for example, her record on trans rights and let's not be, you know, the trans rights are really important, but they are not the thing at the top of most people's agenda on most days of the week. But that became the focus of a front page Daily Mail article designed to trash Penny Morden because her stance was perceived to have changed over the years. Never mind that Liz Truss has completely U-turned <laughs> over Brexit. That wasn't mm -hmm. reason for the Daily Mail to trash her. But Penny Morden's view on trans rights was reason enough to trash her. So the sense that these issues can be weaponized, that the idea of being woke can be used against you is still highly relevant in the modern Conservative Party and in modern politics. It is, exactly. And Kemi Badenoch, while she was not seen as a front runner, there's been a lot of praise for her within the Conservative the ranks of the Conservative MPs, you know, people like Michael Gove really speaking out uh, for her. And she is 
I mean, her nickname sort of became the cultural warrior candidate. She's very strong on being anti-woke, you know, the fact that we had to sort out all of these issues from free speech in universities to, uh, you know, gender neutral toilets. And I think there's something really interesting here about the wokeness point in particular, because as we know, we've discussed many, many times, Adrian, that the culture war under Boris Johnson had certain you know, strong elements to it. And there were points where it was exposed, I think, in terms of its divisiveness, the Euro 2020 football, England football team success, for example, Pretty Patel calling, taking the knee gesture politics. So there, it, there was pushback. Uh, the Saw report was widely criticised for not being rigorous enough for dismissing structural causes of racism. So there was all that. But I was in a way surprised to see that... It, <laughs> In a way, it feels like the cultural war had run out of steam. And yet here we are in a conservative leadership race. And very much, as you say, these issues are being revived about wokeness and being anti-woke uh, and all that. It, not so much around history and empire and statues, but as you say, in this in this way of uh, gender identity and free speech. And I was on the BBC Radio 4's media show last I think it was last week and I was trying to make this point I was on with Fraser Nelson of The Spectator uh, a, a journalist from the Times newspaper and Paul Mason and I was I was trying to raise the issue of why it is that these candidates feel they need to talk about wokeness because as you say polling shows that the NHS and the cost of living crisis is the main priority for people in this country. Trans issues are important, but they're not a priority, you know, for, for the masses. And so why are the candidates going out of their way to talk about them? Why are their front pages devoted to them on the Daily Mail? And I think it just shows how much how much the story of who becomes the next leader and the prime minister is also the story of the media and the political media class, and as we we're always saying on Byline Times, uh, the very close relationship that exists between politicians in this country and influential people uh, in our press. And so I think the, the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph uh, and the Sun and the Mail and the Express very much like these culture war issues. I think they are important to the people who run those papers, work at those papers. And in a way, if you want to be a conservative leader, if you want to be prime minister, you do need to get influential people at these newspapers on board to make sure that you're uh, going to get the publicity you need and the support you need. And so in many ways, I think this focus on wokeness has been playing to the media. Uh, I, I, I don't think it is ever about what the public wants. Uh, I think it's about the media and also a base within the Tory membership that will be animated by discussion of these issues. Uh, just, to, just to add to that, um, you know, the two broadcast networks set up in the last two years, GB News and Talk TV, the latter, well, both of them, particularly the latter, Piers Morgan, you know, his anti-woke crusade. It's a whole industry of hot air. And the the reassuring thing is that Piers Morgan, I think, gets sometimes less than we do on Byline TV in terms of audiences. But this outrage machine, and, you know, we've got to remember where the culture wars come from in terms of the American precedent, which is the Southern strategy, Republicans trying to take over the white working class, former Democrat voters of the South on issues like race and guns and religion. It's 
it, it is deeply divisive. I mean, a fantastic you know statement by Dominic Grieve on Byline TV last time. Usually, a conservative politician tries to tamp down the instincts and angers of his constituents or her constituents and provide solutions. Here, they try to whip up hatred, and that can end disastrously. But the other reassuring thing, apart from the sort of, well, there's two reassuring things, apart from the, the abject failure of Piers Morgan to stir mass anger and his war, endless war and woke, uh, is the Australian example, because Linton Crosby's the Liberals there, I think they are the Conservative Party there, they really went down the route of the woke wars. They lost the election. The other slightly reassuring thing is that compared to Boris Johnson's uh, leadership campaign in 2019 or Theresa May in 2016, the papers are at odds. So um, it's pretty clear, and maybe because there are some close connections, for example, uh, writing in the Times, James Forsyth is pretty clearly for Rishi Sunak. He doesn't declare quite high up that he is an old school friend, his best man and godfather to Rishi Sunak's children. But there we go. That's the British media for you. Um, and the Times group seems to be pushing for Rishi Sunak. Meanwhile, as Hardy points out, I think the Telegraph are pretty pro, pro um, Liz Truss. She's seen as Boris Johnson's chosen successor, and the male are so, so gung-ho for her that they're sort of spending a lot of their energies trying to convince that narrow selectorate of 160,000 voters. Um, because they're Conservative Party members, they tend to be old, elderly, tend to live in the shires, and they're mainly white. They are that's what we're going to see played out this terrible summer is that a tiny number of non-dom billionaires trying to convince a tiny selectorate of conservative party members and deciding between themselves who our next prime minister will be that is shocking and it's becoming a habit james hawes is uh, an author we've had on the Byland times podcast and wrote a brilliant book called the shortest history of england of which the the central thesis is that the united kingdom is a construct effectively engineered by england and by southern england and that the uk is governed by and for southern england and our electoral system makes that possible and i've done two interviews on the podcast in the last seven days one on this program last week the week in politics with john nicholson the uh, smp mp and then a few days ago with naomi long who's a member of the non-sectarian alliance Party, she's the leader of the non-sectarian alliance party in northern ireland both of whom made the point that Brexit in particular, a project of English nationalism, which is how they both described it, has made the desire for independence in Scotland and the desire for either independence for Northern Ireland or more probably the reunification of North and South Ireland uh, has been driven by English nationalism and provoked by Brexit. And, and this is a dimension which, as, as the row over the Northern Ireland Protocol demonstrates, uh, appears to just be viewed as completely irrelevant by most politicians in Westminster, or certainly most conservative politicians on the front benches in Westminster. Yeah, I think you're right, Adrian. I mean, Rudy Sunak has... He said that the union is a priority, you know, keeping the union together is a big priority for him. 
again, he said that, but I don't think we've heard anything from him uh, with regards to Northern Ireland protocol. Certainly from what I've seen, all the candidates sort of support the direction of travel that's already been going up, going in under Boris Johnson, which is inflaming tensions on the island of Ireland uh, in, in terms of the border in the Irish Sea. And then we've got this, as you rightly say, Scotland. I think we got this week the date in October when the Supreme Court is going to hear the case as to whether uh, the Scottish government is able to constitutionally hold another independence referendum. I think Johnson, one of Johnson's biggest legacies could be, yeah, the breakup of the union or at least setting that into, in, into train. So I think Scotland, I was speaking to somebody from Glasgow about this last night, who voted to remain in the union in 2014, now would vote to uh, leave the union. Uh, Brexit played a big part, I think, as well as successive Conservative governments that the Scots don't vote for. I also think there's something, as you say, about English nationalism, this strand that Johnson epitomised in many ways, you know, the Etonian English sort of ruling classes uh, and the fact that they think the rules don't apply to them, that they sort of get away with what whatever they want. I do think there has been a dominance of Westminster politics over a number of years uh, preceding uh, Johnson, Johnson's era. But I think that the, his legacy may ultimately be having, you know, given a lot of impetus for people in Scotland to say we uh, we don't need to be doing this. What are we getting out of it? So I think it'll be really interesting if another referendum is called, because my feeling is uh, Scotland will vote for independence. And I think that will raise many issues uh, when we come to Ireland. So I just don't. So Johnson, I think it's, it's like a slow, slow motion train wreck in a way so it, it's so by september he'll he will go there'll be another leader in place but as peter has said i think his what the forces that have propelled him and the destruction that he has caused will outlast even any more chaos that he wants to create and i think if the union was to splinter i think that would perhaps be a big moment of self-reflection for Britain. Because as I've said in the past, we, we haven't had any events in our recent past which have given us reason to hold the mirror up and really look at what Britain is, its role, uh, its past in a really rounded way, uh, where we want to go in the future, how global Britain is compatible with a world uh, in which geopolitical threats such as Ukraine, you know, the war in, in Ukraine, Putin's aggression, China, how that's going to play out. So I think the biggest part of his legacy for me will be Scotland and what happens in Ireland. And so that destruction is is not just uh, is not just about what's been playing out in Westminster. That would be further reaching. Can I yeah. can I just add? Can I just yeah. add? Uh, speaking a word for English, for England, um, I finally accept I'm English. That I've always called myself a Welsh Armenian Londoner. That inequality, you know, that sense of imperial Etonian exceptionalism has victim. You know, Birmingham, Newcastle. Uh, you know, we, they become victims of this too. We can see it in the media. It's no surprise they're all best men and mates of each other because they all go to the same private schools. We have journalism and, and, and professions increasingly stratified. 
You can only live in London if your parents have money. Um, pub, you know, 7% of the population, um, I think, which is public school, privately educated, uh, and 90% of the editors in this country. Otto English at this event made this great point that, you know, after, oh, what's his name, the one after Macmillan, uh, who lasted briefly, from 1963 to 1997, we had no privately educated prime ministers. The first one to come back was Tony Blair, and then Gordon Brown wasn't. And then with Cameron and um, uh, and Johnson, we have Etonians ruling the roost, again, for the first time in 50 years. So this inequality, this sense of the shires dominating the cities, if you like, is is not just about the union. It's 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 about England as well. It's about a whole post-imperial construction. Who would have thought after Blair, you know, enacted devolution? We'd be back at this moment where we have this ruling elite trampling the four nations and also, you know, internally. And it reminds me of anything, and I'm going to be very pessimistic here. It's not as bad as that. But there's a parallel with the breakup of Yugoslavia in that after Tito, who was a Croat, a bit like having a Scottish prime minister, um, the Serbs basically were, were owning the army and, and controlling the country. And then when the secession happened, first with Croatia and then with Bosnia and uh, Slovenia, um, the Serbs could not bear losing their power. And that resulted in a very bloody war. But the union, the former Yugoslavia, as it was, that had many great things about it, was a fiction. And when, or rather, the power balance wasn't there. And we will have to, whether it's the breakup of the UK, we will have to look at power in this country, how it's distributed, the dominance of Westminster, the centralization of things, the lack of a fair voting system. It will happen because, you know, thanks to people like Boris Johnson, they make it so egregious that people get so angry, they realize there's something structurally wrong with the way we run politics here. Yeah, well, the logic of taking back control once you accept that and acknowledge that as a legitimate political goal it seems to me you cannot say that in a uk context with reference to brexit and then say to people in scotland if they are choosing to take back control that you can't have it either you believe in taking back control or you don't yeah, the one question I'd raise about this then is if there is um, a referendum. Um, and, you know, I I can understand why the Scots would want to leave. So, you know, it's not my choice. Um, I've always said historically I don't want to be left alone in England without the Scots. But I accept that's not a good position and, and England's got to work out its own identity crisis on its own. But I would say if there is going to be a referendum, don't make it like Brexit. I... Tell us what will tell the Scottish voters what the exit will look like, because that's been the problem with Brexit. It started off with various, you know, leader, leaders of the vote leave and leave EU campaigns saying, oh, we'll stay in the single market. Oh, we'll have a Norway solution or we'll go for EFTA or we'll have a customs union. And because Brexit means Brexit means whatever the most extreme thing you can imagine. We've had a hard Brexit and nearly a no-deal Brexit. I hope the Scots and the SNP and the, those who do want independence really just lay out, you know, what the expectation is about the pound, the queen, all that stuff, so that it doesn't become this hostage to fortune, which is more exit, please. 
Mm-hmm. Um, getting Brexit done was Johnson's catchphrase at the 2019 election. I, I find it amusing that he has claimed at various points during his prime ministership to have got Brexit done. That's been one of his main calling cards. And yet the candidates to replace him talk about getting Brexit really done or Brexit finally done, or that we're talking about having a Brexit candidate in terms of Liz Truss. I mean, if Brexit was done, surely it's done. It's interesting, Adrian, because it's it both has to be done, but also has to continue forever. I think both things have to be have to be true for the Conservative Party at the moment, because yeah. that is the big project. That's Johnson, the way he frames his flagship uh, contribution to Britain is, I got Brexit done. We were the party who got it done. And polling shows that actually uh, can, people in Britain are tired of hearing about Brexit. They don't want to hear about it. They do feel that it was is something that has been done and we must move on from it. There are other priorities, cost of living, NHS, uh, all of those, all of those things. So it has so in a way it has to be done, but it can't ever just be done because there's so much mileage for the Conservative Party in all of all of what it has come to embody and all of the all of what it allows each of the different candidates and the different factions of the party to continue to push for and continue to call for. So it's really interesting because Brexit was never just a practical project in many ways. I mean, I've argued that it was it was a mythic project, not just in terms of what it promised people and, and the image that was conjured up as to what Britain had to get back to, but also in terms of uh, per, you know, politically, it was mythic. There, there was no real discussion, really, of what it would amount to. And now it has to continue to be mythic. It has to be continue, something that uh, each new conservative candidate or a leader can point, you know, point to and say that it is the guardian. They are the guardian of Brexit, and because there's a whole philosophy that goes around it. There's a whole propaganda. There's all this rhetoric. There's, there's so much that is loaded into Brexit, I think. And Boris Johnson's often equated that with freedom. You know, whenever he talks about Brexit in Parliament, he often talks about giving the British public back their freedom, making Parliament sovereign, the will of the people. And all of those three uh, talking points uh, are also, I think, very important for the modern Conservative Party. You know, they, they've got to, when people are at, when people are in queues for four hours trying at Dover and their flights are being cancelled, when restaurants are closing because they just don't have wait, waiters uh, to come, they don't have waiters anymore that are coming from Europe for those jobs, uh, when the economy is, is doing badly and the cost of living crisis is biting, uh, all of that doesn't feel very free, <laughs> but uh, the the mileage in the Brexit project and safeguarding it and making sure we can we can have the true version of it, whatever that is, is this notion that Brexit is all about freedom. So I think rhetorically and philosophically, it is still it is important that way to some extent, <laughs> but I, it, also, it has just, to be done. I, I, I just think also to add, you know, it is the ultimate culture wars. 
you know, Remainers, Ramonas, Brexiteers with the double E on the end, sound them like Buccaneers. Uh, this is equivalent to, oh, maybe not as violent as Cavaliers and Roundheads, a little bit like, you know, Lancastrians and Yorkists. And they, you know, the, the, the relish in that got them that majority. They were losing majorities. And that is the sort of origin, I think, story of the, 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 you know, the war on woke. It comes out of Brexit. How do we now take it forward? You're right. As the damage increases and people feel less freedom, then we have what we're doing is stoking the wars of populism. So as this is the stab in the back, this is the, you know, Trump saying the election was stolen. What happened? You then get to saboteurs, enemies of the people. And that's, you know, that's the sort of root of the culture wars you can see Johnson referring to when he talks about the deep Remainer state, the blob, as Paul Dacre calls it in the mail, the blob, the civil servant service, you know, like the deep state, it sort of doesn't respond to the will of the populace. It doesn't appoint him head of Ofcom. How dare they not? But he'll probably get a lordship. And, and. And, and and then we really have that language of anti-elites, you know, uh, new enemies. So the enemies were migrants, they still are to us, certain refugees and asylum seekers, you know, the Rwanda, the Red Meat Project, those enemies. But then the enemies within, as Thatcher once referred to uh, during the miners' strike. Um, and they, in a way, we've seen it with the civil servant, the senior foreign office civil servant, really tipping Johnson into resignation. I forget his name, but he said that Johnson lied about the Chris Pincher thing. He was told about it. And that precipitated the fall. And there is a lot of, there are safeguards. We've talked about the lack of safeguards in our system. But, you know, there's a difference between democracy and populism. Populism, which is the rule of the majority, would say, and did vote in Hitler's Germany, whatever, like, well, we can kill the other 49%, you know, because what we have underpinning democracy is the rule of law individual rights so you can't say i don't like this 99.9 percent .9 people don't like these people so let's get rid of them you and the trans issue plays that in a way you know why are they worrying about one percent of the population because the majority feels stronger the thing that's preserved democracy from demagoguery and populism has been if you like we could call it the deep state you know the deep state most people are referring to when they talk about it they mean you know the security services cia mi6 but here we're talking the rule of law Lawyers, you know, Islington lawyers who Boris Johnson's always reigning against, who actually he lived with until recently. So his ex-wife, mother of his children, is a, is a lawyer living in Islington. Um, the constant look for enemies within. Now, I don't know how much further they can go with this. Partly the Australian example, partly because, you know, this whole game we're seeing played out over the sun, this tedious show-off, this parade of Brexity, Brexitiness, and nationalism and flag waving uh, is for that tiny electorate. And then in September, the cost of living crisis hits. I don't know, you know, whether um, that rhetoric will obtain after the um, after they've got whoever replaces Johnson. Just as you know, and there was a lot of pro-Russian sentiment in the Conservative Party, and Boris Johnson, I understand, did block arming Ukraine until February. War came and he had to choose a side. He chose the right side, I believe. And he did it very vociferously, a bit too vociferously in a way. Methinks he doth protest too much. 
But I think that's what we're going to see, as, as Hadeep says, when people are queuing at petrol pumps, a friend of ours, mine, and Hadeep knows him, uh, writes for Byline Time, his son, who's in a care home, care home's going to close down because they can't get EU workers anymore. These things, these tiny nibbling away at the supply chain, the, the labor pools we can get, the movement of goods, that will become creaking to a point. It's already seen it with people's attitudes to Brexit. You saw it catastrophically collapse for Johnson. My suspicion is that even the media peeling away and fighting each other, which candidate they want, that whoever inherits number 10, because it is like a more like an inheritance than a proper election, it's more like electing a pope, um, will regret it. Mm. Uh, in passing, I will say there's nothing I, I quite enjoy so much as non-doms and old Etonians telling me, lecturing me about unrepresentative elites. Uh, and by the by, the, uh, the EU today has launched proceedings against the UK over its failure to implement the Northern Ireland Protocol, which of course will be music to the ears of those Brexiteers who happily signed away Northern Ireland, in a sense, from the rest of the United Kingdom in, in trade terms, and are only too happy to enjoy a trade war as evidence of the intransigence or the alleged intransigence of the European Union. Let's get a word with Omar, who's a regular listener joining us from the United States. Hello, Omar. Hello there, Adrian, and uh, thank you very much, as always. Um, Hardeep and Peter, uh, thank you. Both of them actually stole my thunder because I was going to actually talk about the culture wars, the perpetual necessity of, of the conservatives for these culture wars uh, to, to continue to cling and to hold on to power. And they've held on to it now for more than 12 years. Um, the couple of points I wanted to make um, really quickly, though, um, about this need to keep hammering Brexit in. I wonder whether or not, as the United Kingdom becomes an even more multicultural society, um, whether or not the Conservatives will continue to get be able to get away with promoting Brexit as a wedge issue. Uh, obviously, education is very important, and we know that, as, as Hardy pointed out, Brexit has devastated us. I mean, it's really um, helped to really um, weaken the United Kingdom in so many ways. These trade deals with Australia and other nations, which have been an absolute abject disaster and failure, um, and um, the, the fact that there's so many jobs that people now can't do, they've all been uh, things that have really helped to weaken the country. But I think that the main point I really wanted to make was as long as the Conservatives have the right-wing media, and, and thank goodness for the great publications like Byline Times, I think we're always going to be up against it with the programming of the masses, with the toxic poison that comes out of Fleet Street in a number of cases. But also the problem for me, at least uh, from one angle, is how do the Labour Party react to all this? Because Keir Starmer, as you know, made a speech a couple of weeks back talking about how Brexit's not going to be something that we're going to really tamper with. We're going to just try to make it more you know, efficable and, and more, uh, I don't know, not comfortable, but more conducive to what we need. And he didn't really put up a fuss against this. And so this to me is a problem as well. And I wanted to know if if uh, Hardeep or Peter had any comments about that, because I, I'm I'm kind of worried about that too, in a way. You know, um, Labour's got to have a bit more teeth in it, I think. Peter, Hardeep, which of you wants to pick up that battle? Well, I just on that first bit, thanks, Omar. Um, on you know, we've done some polling about Brexit, and 
there is a, a definite sense that strategic, tactically, it's weakness in a way. It's not myself as a journalist, I think, who want to do. I always raise the subject of, you know, why aren't we back in the single market? But I think Labour have done their research. And if they fight on the ground of Brexit again, they're, they, they're basically giving the Tories a gift because they're the party to get Brexit done. My belief is that anybody with any sense, including the leadership of the Labour Party, understands that we'll need to reconverge for our economy. None of these far-flung trade deals compensate for our nearest trading partners. Meanwhile, just on that Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, because Britain is faffing around and defying international law, grants from the EU are being withheld from British scientists. So all the material intellectual economic interests lead to a sort of rapprochement. And that's like gravity. I, I can understand why, if you're a tactical politician, look at those northern seats which voted leave, were Labour, then they voted for Johnson. You don't want to do that. And just finally on the on the media, I understand it. I don't approve it. That's why I'm not a politician. You know, um, I don't have to make these sort of rather cynical tactical decisions. On the media. I'm again, I'm always a bit more optimistic. I remember telling people three years ago, it won't work out, Johnson. And then Dominic Cummings left and now he's gone. And because everybody thought um, my younger team may be more, more sort of traumatized, thought he'd last for you know, two terms. On the media, I think it's in a crisis. I do think Fleet Street, it got these bungs uh, for co- over COVID. It also got fat. Uh, removed from that online publication. So they got a gift from this government of hundreds of millions of pounds. They're still struggling with circulation. They are, I am amazed. Well, the TV team went out in the streets in places like Uxbridge like a year ago. None of the papers have covered it. Uh, Johnson's Lies, Peter Oborn had done his amazing blog and a book on it, but nobody had covered that, no reviews. Yet somehow, through independent media, through word of mouth, through astute readers and observers, it gone out to most of the population. Boris Johnson was a liar. So maybe the media hegemony of Fleet Street isn't as strong and impregnable as we think. But anyway, that's what we have to believe to keep on going. Mm. Uh, one final thought, Peter, and Hardeep, if you wish as well. I just, I just want to reflect on a big story relating to the Labour Party this week. And finally, the Ford report was published. And this is a report into a, a leaked document. That This was a document that Labour was originally due to submit to the Equalities and Human Rights Commission over allegations of anti-Semitism during the time when Jeremy Corbyn was leader. The document was not submitted to the commission, but was then leaked. And Sakir Starmer then commissioned the Ford report to look both into the leak and the substance of the leaks. And it's finally been published two years late, later than it was originally scheduled anyway. And the report does appear to suggest that, well, more than appears to it, that the report does say that there were people working at Labour HQ who were diverting money towards anti-Corbyn MPs and uh, away from pro-Corbyn candidates. And effectively, the the party's machinery was working against its leader. I mean, I'll speak a little bit on this, but I I would say as prelim and a sort of uh, an overture to something Harib's going to write, the Labour Party, we criticise the Conservative Party over Islamophobia, you know, this anti-Semitism, the Conservative Party is quite rife if you go on some of their bulletin boards. 
But the Labour Party has a problem to dealing with racism in a non-sectarian way. And um, certainly that report shows just how toxic that was. Whatever you think about Corbyn, the funds were being diverted away from the leader of the opposition's uh, uh, MPs to others shows that, you know, both right, and I think the left too, I mean, you know, they're, they're sort of, you know, they're, they're, you know, I wouldn't say there's both sideism. I would say if he was the leader, that shouldn't be happening from party HQ. That is just wrong. On the anti-Semitism is like one of the, you know, anti-racism should be embedded in the Labour Party. Uh, and there were indications that though there was complaints about anti-Semitism, other kinds of racism went unaddressed. And I think that this is what the divide and rule, the imperial thing, the playing sectarian differences, is anti-Semitism less important than Islamophobia, all that horrible stuff which pits vulnerable groups or targeted groups against each other. Yeah, and is, Ford does say, just so we're clear, yeah, Peter, yeah. Ford, Ford does say that there was this kind of hierarchy of racisms within yeah. the Labour Party within which anti-Semitism was viewed taken more seriously than other examples of, of racism. I, I mean, the, the, the anti-Semitism uh, in the Labour Party issue is complicated by the, you know, by the Israel-Palestine conflict. And so if you bring it up, people say they're trying to shut down discussion of Israel-Palestine, you're using it as a cover. Um, it is, And that makes it an even trickier issue because obviously Islamophobia relates to not so much now Issues and you know, it must you know, Islam is like 1.2 billion people, and there's like maybe 10 million people of the Jewish faith, um, or Jewish origin. Uh, it you know, it doesn't relate to suspicious conflict so much. And where there are, and the problem is, I've seen anti Semitism in the Labour Party, but I've also seen people exploit it for political reasons. And I, the Ford report tries to navigate that. But definitely, you know, anti-racism is indissoluble. If you're only anti-racist, if it's racist against Jews or Muslims or black people and don't or against Hindus, right? If you only care about one racism, then you are being sectarianism. If you only care about, oh, anti-Hindu feelings, but don't care about anti-Muslim feelings, well, you're basically siding with Modi. And, uh, I, and I think... Uh, you know, is you're seeing it in a way with the debates about diversity in the Conservative Party, so, or both political parties instrumentalise this and create their own hierarchies. We need a uh, an adult discussion of how not to move from anti-racism to sectarianism and communism because it's so easy to fall into. I'll just come in very quickly because Omar said something about the culture wars and um, as Britain becomes more multicultural, will the cultural war keep working? Because essentially it's trying to, as Peter's saying, pit different groups against one another and also say that there's a zero-sum game, you know, because some some groups make progress that necessarily comes at the cost of others and that there are these comparisons and some people are being left behind. And, and so, so the way it's framed the culture war is of course about uh, is very divisive I think when it comes to these questions of multiculturalism and, and diversity we're, we're going to have to have a really interesting discussion in this country uh, with both political parties ab about about what it means really interesting development something I'm have been thinking about a 
and soon I will unpick it and publish something times which i hope helps uh people more on the left of politics to think about why it is that we're going to potentially have our first prime minister of color and why that person will be of the right which is a very interesting development you know in modern politics it's been the labor party that has not had made quicker progress and more progress on having mps of, of color and from ethnic minorities it's been the Labour Party, which has traditionally won the support of those groups. But those dynamics are changing. And I think it's going to be it's it's very complicated to critique what's happening now because you have a conservative party, a governing party, which is technically diverse. You know, we could have a prime minister of colour. And yet, what why is that? Why has that happened? How how do people of colour in the Conservative Party who are in the upper tiers of the Conservative Party see themselves in terms of their race and their identity? And what might the Labour Party and the left be missing about what's their blind spot when it comes to that? And why is it that ethnic minority voters are going over to the Conservatives? And that is important. That's an important discussion to have because underneath it are these disparities that do exist for ethnic ethnic minorities in this country, which need to be tackled. You know, it, it, that, that racism does exist and it is, you know, it is structural. It does need to be looked at. But it's going to become difficult if the new mantra of the Conservative government is we have a prime minister who's an ethnic minority and therefore we how can you say that britain hasn't made any progress how can you say that it's 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 racist so it's going to require a lot of nuance to unpick that and i think i do think the left needs to learn something about what it's missing there it's too easy it's too simplistic to say that people like Rishi Sunak or Priti Patel or Kemi Badenoch are somehow not real ethnic minorities or they're, 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 you know, they're selling out their backgrounds or they don't really believe in what they're doing and they're being more hardline to get promoted. And I think I don't think that's I don't I think that misses a big chunk of what's happening, which is more complicated. Hardeep, thank you very much indeed uh, to uh, go right back to the beginning of this broadcast. I'll be back with uh, the week in politics uh, when Parliament reconvenes in the autumn. And meantime, you can listen to loads more throughout the summer. There'll be fresh episodes of the Byline Times podcast and Byline Radio will continue broadcasting as well via Twitter spaces. Hardeep's brilliant book, Woke Law, Boris Johnson's Culture War and Other Stories is published by Unbound. It's available via Amazon if you must, although I would encourage you to get it from an independent uh, bookshop if you possibly can. And don't forget Hardeep's uh, edits, uh, The Byline Times, which was co-founded by Peter, and those that newspaper, subscription to that newspaper, fund Byline Radio and Byline, Byline Times podcast and Byline TV as well. Friday nights at seven o'clock, unmissable, I would say. So thank you, Peter. Thank you, Hardeep. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Adrian. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye, Adrian. This has been Byline Radio or on Catch Up, the Byline Times podcast. I'm Adrian Goldberg. I'll see you again soon.